Hello and welcome to the Highway to Health show. My guest for this episode is an exercise physiologist who's also a podcaster. He believes that movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity, because movement is part of what makes life complete. His name is Ben Reuter, and he's the founder of Moving to Live and Fit Life Pittsburgh. In this episode, Ben and I talk a lot about the role that movement plays in our health and well-being, the challenges of modern and sedentary life, and how to overcome them and stay active. Now, before we go into today's episode, let me just quickly remind you about Optimize with Brian Johnson. Optimize is an app where you can find a daily piece of actionable advice in video and audio format that will help you live your life better. Seriously, in less than 10 minutes, you can consume an amazing piece of content that will make your day so much better. But that's not all that Optimize is about. There are also hundreds of book summaries called Philosopher's Notes, where Brian studies these books and creates these amazing summaries, complete with worksheets, audio, and video to help you get the most important pieces of information in them and incorporate them into your life. I strongly encourage you to check them out. Use the link dre.show forward slash optimize and get three free book summaries. Oh, and remember that there's also a free Facebook group where we have regular Q's and A's as well as different interviews every week. So if you're a regular listener of the show and you would like to get more than one interview per week, this is your solution. Just head on over to dre.show forward slash group and request access. It is free and all you need is a Facebook account, which you probably already have. But in any case, I don't want to keep you any longer. Here is my conversation with Ben Reuter. Remember, you are in the highway to health and I'm your guide to get you there. Are you ready to live ageless? Want to discover alternative health choices, cutting edge nutrition, and fitness for the entire family? Welcome to Highway to Health Show with your host, Dr. E, the stem cell guy, where Dr. E helps you live ageless. And now, here's your host, Dr. E. So, Sitting with me today is Ben Reuter, and he's an exercise physiologist, and today we're going to be talking about movement as a lifestyle, something that I've been saying for a little bit, but I really wanted to have an expert about that. So, Ben, welcome to the show. Why don't you say hi to us and or to our audience, really, and share a little bit more about this whole thing that you're doing. Dr. E, it's great to be on your show. My ethos or the ethos of what I try to preach is movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. I think I arrived at that kind of in a roundabout way. I've always been a mover and a lot of my social activities and enjoyment, I just like moving, whether it's running or biking or even just going for a walk. And I guess as I got older, I'm 51 now, I started to realize that a lot of people that I knew who weren't active on a regular basis like I was and am started to slow down, for lack of a better term. And really, when I started looking at it and looking at what my dogs did, I started thinking, you know, we think about having to work out and people say, I'm going to work out three times a week, or I'm going to work out every day. But then the rest of the time of the day, we don't really make an emphasis to move. And if we think about long-term health, long-term longevity, you know, some things we can't control because of our genetics. But if we can maintain our physical fitness, our strength, our cardiovascular fitness, our flexibility or range of motion, then hopefully we can be much more mobile and do the things that we want to do, not just now, but 25, 30, 40 years down the line, no matter how old we are. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, obviously, by training, you're an exercise physiologist, but what made you focus on wanting to create movement as a lifestyle, as kind of like your work? What made you decide that that was your calling? 
I think three things kind of all came to a head. I teach at a university and I've taught for you know, over 20 years. And I really started to see and realize that many of the students that I was teaching didn't really enjoy moving themselves or they used the rationale, well, I'm too busy helping other people move to do that. And I didn't think that was a really good message to send. I also had a situation about three and a half years ago where over the course of two and a half years, I had some eye problems and I had 10 retinal surgeries and 16 procedures where what I took for granted as far as moving, you know, as a physician, sometimes with retinal recovery, you have to hold the position or you have to limit what you can do so that you don't redetach the retina. And suddenly what I took for granted as far as moving on a regular basis was something I couldn't do. And I realized how valuable it was for my not only physical health, but also psychological and emotional. And then the final thing is, a little over four years ago, a lot of my movement takes place with my dogs. We hike or run in the woods. One of my dogs was diagnosed with idiopathic epilepsy. And I asked the neurologist, I joked about this before, yes, my dog had a neurologist. I asked her, you know, what are her limitations? And her comment was, she can do whatever she wants to do. So unfortunately, I lost her this spring. But I really noticed that she enjoyed walks, she enjoyed hikes, and I made it an emphasis, a point over the four years that whenever she was able to, which was most days of the week, we went to the woods. And I know every time I took her to the neurologist for the checkup, the neurologist would say, I don't know what you're doing with her, but keep doing it because her heart rate is slow and it's a really strong beat. So I think all three of those things kind of came together and it's the realization we need to think about moving on a regular basis. We may do our regular workouts where we go to the gym and do resistance training or doing cardiovascular, but think about what other things that we can do in movement. And when I started one of my podcasts, Moving to Live, one of my first guests was another physician. And you know, as a physician, your schedule is incredibly busy and you have to rationalize everything that you do. If it takes away from treating patients or spending time with your friends, family, and loved ones. And his first comment was, well, I only do it on the weekends because I see patients during the week. And I said, fine. And he said, well, can I do the podcast interview while I'm walking? Because I don't like to talk on the phone if I'm not moving. I said, not a problem at all. And I think he was kind of looking for a way to get out of it or see if I was for real. And he said, well, can I walk my dog while we do the interview? And I said, absolutely. So he walked for 14,000 steps. We talked for about an hour and 20 minutes. And periodically throughout the interview, you got to hear Bucky stop, sniff, bark at other dogs. And that kind of partway through my podcast career made me realize, you know, this movement thing, treating is a lifestyle where you pick opportunities to move, whether it's an organized workout or just doing something involving movement, that's a better message than saying, you know, we need to do cardiovascular fitness three to five times a week. We need to do resistance training two to three times a week. We know just from the statistics and the studies that are out there that most Americans, I know you're in Spain now, and I know it's a little bit better in Europe. But most Americans don't move on a regular basis. They don't meet the basic recommendations of 10,000 steps per day. So yes, those are great goals. But let's just start looking at rather than saying you have to hit this goal and say, look, just move as much as possible, make it a lifestyle, and let's see what happens from there. Because something important that you just mentioned is, okay, so there's a recommendation to do 10,000 steps. Some days I wake up early and I go for a run and I run and I see my watch and it's 18,000 steps or, you know, 20,000 steps. So 
that doesn't necessarily mean also that I'm done for the day and that I can just go sit down for the rest of the day. Correct? That's correct. And I mean, I think the thing that so many people, especially if they're involved in a relatively sedentary job, they say, oh, well, I've got my 10,000 steps in. I've taken a class or I've walked on the treadmill or I've walked my dog or I've gone for a run. And yet I know that when I talk to people who use some sort of step tracker, nurses and doctors who work in hospitals, like, well, you know, how many steps do you take? You know, and it's not unusual for them to say 40,000, 45,000, 50,000. And on the one hand, I'm not saying everybody should walk 50,000 steps a day. Ideally, I'd like people to do that, you know, as much as possible. But if people can just be more aware of when do they move, you know, do they park as close as they can to the grocery store entry? When they go and they fly, do they step on the human escalators that move you along the concourses or take the time to walk? When you come where there's the option between the elevator and steps, you know, obviously if you have to climb to the hundredth floor and you've got a business meeting, it probably isn't realistic to climb all 100 steps and get off the elevator dripping in sweat with your tie askew, but you can maybe walk down after the interview and maybe you can walk five or six flights before the meeting. And I think not only are you getting the movement in, but we all know that increased blood flow is going to help the neurons work better. And you're probably going to find yourself much more alert and much more focused in the meeting that's going to occur. That's exactly the point that I want to get to, or that I wanted to get to. I just had a conversation with a lady who used to be a physical education teacher. And I asked her and I said, why do you think that schools are not just not emphasizing PE, but they're kind of like actively getting rid of it? And she said, well, it's because of money and, you know, the schools and they're pushed for academic performance and all these things. And so they think that having kids taking classes for longer or science and math and whatnot, it's going to improve those things. And I said, yeah, but the research is unequivocal that if you're taking frequent breaks and you're doing some sort of physical activity, then you're going to perform better in all those things. They're going to do better in math. They're going to do better in science. They're going to answer the tests better. They're going to do all these different things better. You know, Jim Quick has the saying, he says that the brain that moves grooves. So in order for you to get those grooves in your brain, you actually need to move. And that's kind of like one of the things that we keep forgetting. Is this something as well that you've seen in your experience? And I'm sure I'm pretty sure you have. I think those are some great points. I know you and I were chatting before we started recording. You said, give me a minute to do a little bit of movement. I've had a couple of interviews. Right now, I'm standing on a wobble board and I'm doing this interview with you on a wobble board just because I know that you're going to see me moving around on video. It's not because I'm having a seizure, but it's because I'm moving. I find that my best thoughts come when I'm out walking or running or riding my bike. You know, Maybe I'm not doing long division, like the idea for my podcast, the idea for movement, the idea for, you know, oh, this is somebody I want to interview for what I do. I want to talk about this because I'm moving and it's kind of like that stimulates my brain to function. I know that my dad often says that if I was in school now, they probably would put me on Ritalin because I was the kid who, if I was bored, I acted out. And I know if I didn't have as much physical education and as many recess sessions as I had then, I probably would have been even worse. I know that there are some schools that have switched to putting their kids on standing desks. Some schools give their kids like those little fidget things for their hands. Anything that can take away nervous energy or allow people to concentrate is better. So I think anything we can do to encourage movement is a good thing. I know I recently interviewed for one of my podcasts, a gentleman who is career Navy. And right now he's in a command post in Florida. And he said, you know, 
he goes out for a run whenever he has a problem with somebody who's a subordinate him or with his XO, the person who's below him. They'll go for a run or a walk and they'll talk about problems. He said, you know, we finish up and we've pretty much solved what we thought was a problem that we weren't going to solve just by running or walking and talking it through. So I think the idea of saying, let's use motion to help us think better is something that some of us, you and I, have just naturally picked up on or because of our education. But other people think, well, you know, you have to sit down and concentrate. I don't think that's true. I think many people find if they stand or if they move, they'll be able to concentrate and function even better intellectually. It's funny you mentioned that about, what was that, maybe 2015 or somewhere around there, I bought a stand-up desk after I went to a Bulletproof conference and I thought it was super cool. So I went out and I bought it. And at first I wasn't sure. I just wanted the new kind of like shiny thing. And I started working on it and, and that was the end of it, right? And then I stopped working at that place and I moved to California where we were living last year and I got there and there was a standing desk there. So I started using it. And now that we're here in Spain, we've been here for three months and I'm renting a place in a co-working space and I have an office, but it's already furnished. It comes with what it comes and there's no standing desk. So I figured, well, it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. You have no idea how much harder I find it to focus and to stay concentrated. And what I told you right before we started, it's something that I actively do. I learned this in a different program that I'm taking. It's called Optimize. And I've totally adhered to it about the cycles. And if you stay sitting for too long, you start losing some of this focus. So while I do encourage kind of like jam sessions that I call it 90 minutes of deep work, I also have a timer in my watch that goes up every 1,000 seconds when I'm working on that. So when it goes up, which is about 16 and a half, 16 minutes and 45 seconds. So I get up and I stretch or I'll do two or three burpees. That's it. So just enough to move, but not too much that'll take me away from the concentration of what I'm doing. The difference is night and day in terms of focus and in terms of what I can achieve. I think you and I must have bought our standing desks at about the same time. I was like you. I was like, ooh, bright, shiny thing. I bought one that's adjustable up and down. I thought I would do some sitting down and some standing up. I haven't sat down since. It's stayed up all the way. And you also made another interesting point there with your sessions of deep work and stopping and moving every 16 minutes or so. I know there's a, in the physical therapy world, there's a very well-known physical therapist, Dr. Shirley Sarman. And in one of her books, she talks about not wanting to hold the position for longer than 20 minutes at a time. And her rationale behind that, backed up by research, is tissues start to change. Muscle tissues are plastic and they'll start to change. So if you're somebody who sits at a desk all day, if they're forced to because they're in a co-working space like you, that 16 and a half minutes where you can get up and work, it probably reduces your risk of developing some low back problems. It definitely is beneficial for your posture long-term. And undoubtedly, as you said, you found, oh, it makes me much more productive in my work. For mental focus, because what happens as well, if your muscles start stagnating, same thing is happening to the rest of the fluids in your body that have to flow specifically lymph and blood and all these different fluids that we have. So the same thing is happening in our brain. So they're not getting all the nourishment. Then you stand up and you raise your heart rate. It's a tiny bit. I mean, you do two burpees. It's not going to get you to 150 beats per minute, I hope. And that's it. You know, then you sit back down and you get back to it. And I think it helps me be more productive for two reasons. One, because of the physical movement. And two, because now I'm trying to figure out how much I can get done before the timer goes off again. It brings into play your competitive spirit. Yeah, it just works. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep doing it. 
And I know one of the people I mentioned, the physician I interviewed while taking a walk, I know in his office, he has a set of kettlebells in his office. He has a pull-up bar in his office. So if he's got a patient that is running late or something, he can hop over into his office and he can do just like you, that little micro amount of exercise. I've got kettlebells screwed throughout the house. I've got a pull-up bar as I walk down my steps. And it's just, you know, figuring out what can I do where it doesn't really change my life as far as being the really strange person, but it, but changed, it does. <laughs> it does. And I'm also the person I'll admit who has gymnastic rings hanging in my living room. <laughs> That's good. I don't think I'll be able to talk my wife into that one, but we'll see. She does put up with a lot of my weird stuff. So, I mean, we'll see where we end up. Now, tell me, how did you get started with uh, moving to live? How, like You mentioned that that idea came while you were running, but What's the purpose behind it? The impetus behind it, I'm a longtime podcast listener, and I noticed probably in 2000 or 15 or so about the time I got the standing desk, and I'm just going to classify them as movement podcasts, everything from what you do to somebody who's a personal trainer. At the end of the day, all of us who are in this field, if we could get our patients or clients to move more or move better. In other words, make them more efficient or if they have pain and you're working with them as a medical professional, if they can move better without pain, that's what we're trying to do. And yet there's so much silo knowledge. The doctors talk to the doctors, the physical therapists talk to the physical therapists, the mind body yoga Pilates people talk to them, never recognizing that there may be something that Dr. E says when he's talking to another physician that, ooh, that would work with my yoga clients or that would work with my yoga patients. And I was listening to a podcast where there was a biomechanist, Stuart McGill, who's recently retired, but very well written in the area of low back rehabilitation. And he said something that really stuck with me and sent me home to buy the equipment for podcasting and starting moving to live and movement as a lifestyle. He said, some of the people doing the best stuff you never hear about because they don't worry about their social media presence. They just do what they do. So when I started doing this, I suddenly learned that there are these little pockets of people or these people that are in these silos who really are doing great movement things that a lot of other people in the movement field, maybe not their specialty, have never heard of. I learned, for example, in the Pittsburgh area, one of the top one or two kettlebell trainers in the world lives in Pittsburgh. Nobody in Pittsburgh knows about him because he's traveling all over the world. I had the opportunity to interview a gentleman in Australia who's a sleep researcher who talked about how sleep was really important and how for him, movement for the, as you and I talked, for mental aspects was so important. And it quickly made me realize that maybe it's because I couldn't exercise as much as I wanted for the time when I was battling the eye problems, or maybe it's because I'm getting older and see light at the end of the tunnel, that I started to realize, like, you know, the thing that has benefited me the most and people that I still remain close to is movement and staying active. You know, my dad's 80 something. He still rides his bike on a regular basis. I talked to him uh, today. He said, yeah, I think I rode my bike 10 or 12 miles today going back and forth. And I can see how that helps him stay active. So I think it kind of became, you know, I'm smart enough to realize I don't know everything but I'm also smart enough to realize that there's all kinds of people doing really neat things related to movement who would love to talk about it, but maybe they don't know how to get outside of their silo because they're concentrating on working with their patients or their clients. And if I can talk to them for, you know, 40, 50 minutes and give them the opportunity to talk about what they do, then at the end of the day, if it helps one or two people move more or move better, I think it's going to enhance their quality of life. Exactly. Or like you said, maybe that'll help 
another health professional to learn something else that they can start using with all of their patients. And now, instead of saying, well, I helped one person, if you can teach someone a skill that then they will use with pretty much all of their patients, that's huge. And most of the things, I'll be honest with you, I trained in age management and then eventually regenerative medicine. So nutrition, lifestyle, which basically is, you know, treat your body well, respect your biology and move. It is our day-to-day. It's the basis of it all. But a lot of the things, a lot of the practical recommendations I've learned elsewhere, I've learned in different fields. Like I said, you know, I started experimenting with the stand-up desk and it worked out for me. I started doing this micradian rhythms and I read from Carl Newport and I don't remember if it was in his first book or in Digital Minimalism, how he describes how most of these people who go deep into deep work mode, they rely on walks, you know, like Charles Darwin, he would go out for walks and he had specific path that he would walk around every single day and he would never miss it. And not with his iPod, not with anything else. He would just walk around those things. And that's how he would get his inspiration. He would come up with, you know, the theory of evolution, pretty much, you know, simple things, right? So all of those things, when you put them together, it has made me realize that at least for me, what's most important is sure, you need to be physically active, but I don't see it as exercise. I see it as I need to do this so that my brain can perform at its best, because that's when I'm most useful to the world. And that's interesting that you say that the sleep researcher that I interviewed, he said the same thing in a different terminology. He said his movement is not necessarily for his physical well-being, but it's for his mental well-being and for his brain to function. And I think we see this across cultures. I know that in Japan, they talk about nature baths. We're going out in the woods and either sitting or walking without a specific distance or intensity goal. They recommend that for uh, quality of life and mental health. And I think any of us who has taken the time to maybe throw away the watch or throw away the bike computer and you just go into the woods, whether it's a city park or a national park or someplace where there's not as much city noise right there with you, you find you can just sense yourself slow down. You sense your stress levels start to drop. And I think that's something, especially with the way society is today, you know, you're probably like me, there's the digital phone, there's the computer, there's the iPad, there's text messaging. And any time that you can just say, okay, I'm going to put that away and I'm just going to move, not with a goal, but as you said with Charles Garwin, you're just moving for the sake of moving. It helps the thinking, it helps the stress level. And I often say I've never finished a time in the park with my dogs whether or not they dragged me around or we just sat there and I petted them, I never finished that feeling worse than when I started. No, never. And there's an interesting thing now that you bring out the woods. I was just reading yesterday about grounding as well and how wearing shoes and plastic soles and we're constantly insulated, right? So going out to the woods and going out in nature helps us ground ourselves. And there's some research that I wasn't aware of that shows that our blood flows better, that you know we're carrying all this static energy that didn't used to be a problem, but now it's a big problem because we have it everywhere, right? And so that's a twofold benefit. You can ground yourself and 
you get some physical movement, which I think is unbeatable. I don't remember where it is, but in the last couple of days, I also read a blog post on grounding. And I know there's another theory out there, idea out there. This was taught to me by Don Moxley, who recommended the book. I have the book. I don't remember the title. I haven't started it. But there's something along the same lines with the grounding and the nature baths of being near large bodies of water. So he moved to Florida and his comment was, you know, my one non-negotiable with my wife and she didn't complain was I want to live near the water. Yeah. Well, that's the kind of like the easiest or most effective way of grounding yourself is just to go for a swim in the ocean because the salt water conducts all this electricity and will release, you can release all your static energy. And the thing is, we don't realize most of these things that we're constantly doing, but when you stop and you think about them and you realize like, oh my God, yeah, I'm totally insulated because I'm always wearing shoes and they've got the rubber soles and you know, you're never releasing the static energy. So it is affecting us. But going back to movement, now you've got two podcasts. Are they both kind of like similar because you've kind of like spoken about both of them or is one of them something different? Uh, one of them is FitLab Pittsburgh, which is about movement and movement opportunities in the Pittsburgh area. I started that with the idea that I would learn how to use the equipment and become comfortable with interviewing people and then go to the podcast Moving to Live, which interviews professionals. But I soon realized that it really is six degrees of separation. I would interview somebody in Pittsburgh who say, hey, I know somebody you need to interview for this other podcast. And it would kind of uh, flip-flop back and forth. So I've got one series of interviews that I can trace 11 or 12 people back. And at the end of the day, the advantage of doing the one in Pittsburgh is I can really expose people in Pittsburgh to movement opportunities. I've taken it a little bit farther with that. We do, my girlfriend does this with me three times a week on YouTube. We do little one minute movement tip and lifestyle hacks. We do a FitLab Pittsburgh features every week, which is a written, this is where we'll determine your listener's sense of humor. It's basically six or seven question form that's, that somebody fills out and you can either be a two-legged mover or a four-legged. So we've featured not only people, but a cat that takes walks on a leash. And my personal favorite is the goat that takes walks and whose favorite movement activity was going down the slide. So the whole idea is just to raise awareness of movement in the Pittsburgh area. And then moving to live is more along the lines which you and I were chatting about a few minutes ago interviewing other professionals and giving people in the movement field an opportunity to see in different knowledge silos, both for what somebody does professionally, but even as importantly, what their story is. You know, you see the accomplished physician or the accomplished physical therapist or personal trainer, and you think, wow, I could never be like that. And you may never realize that, you know, this physician may be fighting an autoimmune disease or the physical therapist may be a recovering alcoholic. And when you can actually personify what the person's message is. It's like, oh, perfect example for that is with all my eye surgeries, I just lucked out that my eye surgeon, he's from Belgium and he's a huge cyclist. And I think it really helped with my treatment with him is he knew how important cycling and running was to me. So he would do one of the procedures and he would say, now you can ride your bike on the road, but I don't want you to go off-road. So he understood how important these things were to me. And I think with moving to live, being able to tell the professional's story. So maybe another professional realizes, wow, they didn't get there overnight. Or somebody who's listening, who maybe is just an amateur movement aficionado or somebody who just wants to learn more, they can say, oh, that's what a physical therapist does. That's why the cost when I go to see the physical therapist is so high. It's not somebody who just took a couple classes and they were suddenly an expert. 
or that's why it's important to go see a physical therapist instead of just consulting with Dr. Google and figuring out what's the first piece of advice that comes out, right? I forget what it is. My understanding is most of you who go through medical school, when you have your infectious disease class, you're convinced with every disease you cover that you have that disease. Yep, exactly. There are so many things along the going through medical school that, you know, but before we move on from movement, uh, (laughs) that kind of stumped me there. One of the things that has recently caught my attention. And I think it was part of the information that you sent our way at a time for this interview. And it is that notion that people move a lot for a brief period of time, and then they're sedentary for the rest of the day. Is that better than not exercising at all? Or is that pretty much the same in terms of just that movement, that need for movement? Provided they're cleared by a physician, I think any movement is better than no movement. Again, you know, especially as we age, we want to have that physician's clearance. But one of the things that I've become very aware of, I suspect just from talking to you, you're probably like me, you're somewhat of a gadget geek. So I picked up one of the Aura Rings, and it's basically a sleep tracker, but it also tells me the times that I'm sedentary throughout the day. So I think it's more important. I would rather see if I'm working with clients, I would rather see somebody who you know, maybe takes 15 or 20,000 steps a day and doesn't quote unquote officially work out rather than somebody who says, you know, I went to the row class this morning and we rode for 35 minutes or 40 minutes and my heart rate averaged 85% of my max. I'd rather see somebody do smaller amounts of movement. That's the person that it's easier to say, hey, you know, when you're just moving around, what can you do to maybe add a little bit of resistance training in? And they're going to be the ones who are more likely to figure out ways to do that, whether it's picking up their dog, if they're in their backyard, maybe picking up a sack of mulch or something like that with correct lifting techniques, as opposed to the person says, well, I already worked out. What do I need to do this? The old comment or the joke commonly with runners is, you, you know, if you've worked with any runners, you would like them to do some resistance training because running can has a tendency, especially endurance running, of being a catabolic or tissue breakdown activity. You'd like to see them lift. And how many runners have you worked with or known and said, oh, I don't need to lift. I get enough work when I run with my legs. It's like, well, that's not exactly true. Exactly. Exactly. Well, it's funny that you mentioned it because I was just talking about my aura ring in the previous interview as well. And that's very interesting what you just brought up because I used to, I use it up until now to mostly track my sleep you know, about, you know, how efficient am I being during sleep and putting in my hours and all those things and my heart rate variability. But I think that obviously starting looking at the amount of inactive time, I think it calls it, or the apps refers to it as inactive. So how many hours have you been inactive throughout the day? And I think that's also a very valuable piece of information that I'll start looking at. And it's interesting the days that you maybe don't officially quote unquote work out. If I live on a little over four acres, so sometimes there's a significant amount of yard work to do. And there may be some days it's like, look, I've got to mow the lawn and do this and do that. And I'm running around all day. And, you know, at the end of the day, my watch may have tracked that I did 18,000 or 19,000 steps without an official quote unquote workout. But more importantly, when I look the next day, when I sync my aura ring and I see my inactive time was, you know, maybe 10 minutes throughout the day. It's like, oh, well, that explains why I was a little more fatigued than if I went for a quick 35, 40-minute run and spent the rest of the day in meetings or on conference calls. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a much healthier way to do it because that's simply the way that we were evolved into being. You know, just have 
constant energy. It was our means of transportation. It was our means of getting our food. It was our means of pretty much doing everything. And then suddenly, because of all these conveniences, we find ourselves that we're no longer moving. We're sitting down. And a lot of the times, like we were saying, people are lying down with your sleep. You wake up, you get ready, you get in your car for an hour to go to work, sitting down, you get to work and you sit down for five or six hours. And then you sit down in your car to go back home. And then you sit and watch TV. So it's crazy how little movement we're doing. I would agree. I think it's interesting with a few comments you've made in the last couple of minutes, as I interview more and more people for both FitLab Pittsburgh and Moving to Live, it seems to be for most people, when they hit about 34, 35 years of age, and you start to talk to them about movement, whatever their activity of choice is, whether runners, bikers, rowers, yoga people, they go from being that competitive runner or biker or rower to saying, you know, what's important to me is just being able to do this. Just being able to go out and run for 30 minutes, five days a week. I don't care if I'm never going to be as fast as I was before. Just that rhythmic. And I think for each of us, we have one or two movements or activities that that's where our best thought comes. I have a good friend of mine who retired to Salida, Colorado, which is in the San Juan Mountains. And I know from talking to him, he says, my best thinking comes when I'm on the bike climbing up a mountain pass. So I think just that regular movement and figuring out what is it that allows you to really focus on other things, on maybe not thinking at all, just being, and you finish and it's like, oh, wow, that didn't even feel like a workout because it wasn't a workout. It was movement. Yeah, exactly. I think that's one of the most important distinctions that you make. And it is movement, not as a workout, because people tend to think of it as, okay, I have to move just because my doctor said so just, you know, for heart health or for this or for that. And I was just sharing in one of the interviews that I recorded today, how I hate going to the gym. I'm not one of those people that says like, oh my God, I just love working out. Like my wife loves working out. She really does. I hate going to the gym. Like I'm the guy who gets there and just wants to be done. Like, okay, there you go. 25 next, 25 next and whatnot. Because I, I mean, obviously once you're done, you enjoy it and you're like, oh my God, it was good that I did that. But I'm not the kind of person that really likes it. However, moving or going out for a run, that I dig, that I really like. Because just like you were saying, it is not so much about being my personal record. It always feels nice when you improve your times, right? But it's not about that. It's about just going out there and enjoying yourself and enjoying the views. And here in Spain, we get to go out and we're like right on the port. So I walk, I can run right on the beach as the sun's rising. So it's a really great thing to do. And it just clears your mind. And like you said, you start you know, realizing all these different thoughts and you start performing so much better. Now, I think we've made it very, very clear that for brain function it is an ideal thing to do for many, many other things like focus and all those things. But what about, and this is obvious, but what about the most common reason for why people move, which is for physical exercise, for activity? What are your thoughts on that? I think, obviously, as you said, we've pretty much beaten it to death, the mental aspect. If you talk to people as they get older, you know, they start to realize their mortality. Um, just talking to a friend of mine in his late 60s, and he, he said, you know, when I go out for a run or a bike, bike ride now, I just I really appreciate it more than I did 10 years ago because I can still do it. I don't see myself slowing down that much, but I also recognize intellectually that there is an end point. And I think for people who maybe don't have that love of moving like I do and like you clearly do, 
the selling point as far as why it's important is for a couple of reasons. You know, again, I hate to name drop, but I interviewed Trisha Montgomery, who has Canine Fit Club in the United States. It's a franchise. It's a gym facility for people to work out with their dogs because you may not like to work out at the gym, but if you go and it helps make your dog healthier, or if you're somebody who doesn't like to exercise, but you recognize how important it is to set your children up or your life partner up with good, healthy habits, you may go and do something with them. What I tell, I do on the side, I do some personal training and I have some people who are like you and me who just love to move and other people is like, yeah, I need to do it. That's why I come and see you because I wouldn't do it otherwise. The selling point for moving is so that you can have the physical fitness to do what you want to do when you want to do. So if one of your friends comes and says, hey, let's hike this mountain that's three hours away in Spain, you have the physical capacity where you can do that. Now, not everybody wants to hike a mountain, but I have one lady that I work with who has rheumatoid arthritis. She's in her early 60s. She was diagnosed when she was in her 20s and has absolutely the best attitude of anybody with a chronic disease I've ever met. And she walks on occasion, but a couple of years ago, I got a, a text message from her. She was in New Zealand with her husband and with hiking poles, she walked 10K. She did a hike overlooking the mountains. Now, you know, she worked up to it and she said, I was sore afterwards, but she said, if I hadn't worked with you, I never would have been able to do this. It's like, no, no, it wasn't because you worked with me. You took ownership and said, okay, I need to do something so I can do this. So the selling point for people who maybe don't have that love for you and me is, look, what do you like to do? Do you like to get down on the floor with your grandkids? This is why you do these sorts of movement activities or organized workouts. Do you like to be able to go out and throw the ball with your son or daughter? This is what you do, so you have to do it. So it's kind of, I'm like you, I hate going to the gym. So what I've done is I've put a set of gymnastic rings in my living room. I've got kettlebells in my backyard. I've gone a little bit overboard, but I'm in the profession so I can justify it. So my rationalization is I don't have to get in the car and go to the gym. My hardest thing is to do the resistance training because I don't enjoy it, but I recognize doing it allows me to do the other things. So I think the trick for people who maybe don't enjoy the movement like you and me is to find out what makes them tick, what do they like to do, or what do they want to be able to do. I think if I can tell a very brief story, when I taught at a school in Florida, I would tell the story to a freshman level health class that I talk. I would say, you know, my parents knew somebody when they were first married, and this was in the late 1950s, and she was in her 80s and she fell down and she broke her hip. So what they did at that point in time when somebody broke their hip and they were in their 80s, they said, well, you're going to be dead in a few years, so we're just going to put you in bed. So this lady was bedridden until she was well over 100 years old with no sign of dementia. What a horrible way to live because you couldn't go out and do things. On the other hand, I'm reminded when I was living in Florida, there was a gentleman in his 80s who got into doing Ironman triathlons, I think when he was in his 50s or his 60s, and one Memorial Day or Labor Day, he got up, went for a bike ride on one of the rails to trails, and in the middle of the bike ride, fell off his bike and was dead when he hit the ground of a massive stroke. And I would tell these two examples to my freshman college students, and then when I would finish telling about the gentleman who died of a stroke, I'd say, isn't that phenomenal? And they'd look at me like I was this macabre person. But think about it. This person was able to do what he wanted to do. And it was very rough, I'm sure, on his friends and family that all of a sudden he wasn't there. But he was able to do what he wanted to do when he wanted to do because he maintained that level of physical capacity so he could do it. And I think if any of us think about it, 
that's what we want to do. If you talk to older people, one of their biggest fears is losing the ability to move and be mobile. Well, exactly. Because I mean, if you think about it, this ability is exactly that. You don't have the ability. And what is that ability? To do things, to move, to go to different places, to have that autonomy. And it's funny that you brought that up because one of my mentors, when I was doing age management medicine, that was exactly what he used to say. He said, listen, nobody wants to live to 120 if they're not having a good time, if they're not enjoying themselves, if they're not healthy. Like if you find somebody with a chronic disorder who is in pain, who cannot move, who is bedridden at age 85, and you tell him, would you like to live another 25 years? He's going to say, hell no. I mean, of course I don't. But on the other hand, most of them would have loved to have an accident and die on the ski slopes, he used to say. I would prefer to die on the ski slopes at 80 than to live to 120 with chronic disease and pain. You know, when you look at it that way, I think that's what most of us would choose. And I think in the West, have done a bad job. I mean, I know a lot in medicine, we treat the disease rather than doing what you're doing uh, with age medicine and some osteopathic and physical medicine physicians saying, look, let's identify problems before they occur and treat the behaviors. And I think we've also done a disservice. I know I've got a number of friends who are European and when they come to the US, they say, you know, I can't believe how difficult it is to walk around some of our cities. And the other thing that they comment on, and this would be an entirely different podcast interview with another expert, they can't believe how much food we eat here in America, the size of the servings. So I know I've got a friend who's stationed over in Italy and he'll post pictures of his watch. And it's not unusual when he goes to a food festival or goes on tourism that he'll take 20, 25,000 steps a day, not working out, just walking around and seeing the sights. I think probably the only time that most people on vacation would get that here in the US is if they go to Disney. Yeah. Yeah. And it is so funny you say that because my wife's Spanish. And when we were living in Mexico, in Cancun, when we first got together, she used to say that same thing. Like, it's so difficult to walk around here because Mexico is, is very much more like the US than Europe, obviously. So it's that thing about you have to drive to go everywhere. And she used to miss that. And I would tell her like, what's your problem? Just get in the car. Let's just go here. Let's just go there. Right. And then we moved last year, we were living in California. And that's when she realized that like, you cannot walk literally anywhere. I mean, the only place that she could walk to was a Whole Foods that we had like half a block down there. And still, she didn't really like doing that because just waiting at the stoplight, it was like forever. And yes, now here we're in Spain, we don't even have a car. We've been here for three months. We don't even have a car. We walk everywhere. And it is not rare for me to walk 15,000 steps. And we're not doing anything in particular. We're just walking around you know, with the baby and just and a stroller and just sightseeing and just doing a couple of things, going shopping, doing all those things. So yes, I think there's a lot of things in our behavior that are affecting us in, you know, stateside and even in Mexico and a lot of Latin America, it happens a lot. And it has a lot to do with movements and behaviors and things that we're doing to ourselves. Yeah. I mean, I tell a lot of my clients, what you're doing now, if you don't enjoy doing it, is you're kind of putting physical capacity. I use different terminology. You're putting physical capacity in a bank because you never know when, you know, you may be diagnosed with cancer or you may be in a car accident. And the more physically fit you are, the better you're going to be able to fight off whatever that stress is. I read something recently, and you can probably speak better to this as a physician, but what many people die of is what's termed frailty. They constantly get weaker, weaker, weaker. 
everything in life becomes more and more of a stress. And eventually there's some stressor that may be something that you or I would think, well, that's not really that serious, but it's a cumulative effect. So the stronger we can be physically, the better off we're able to withstand the stresses of life without making that sound like a platitude. Yeah, there's no question about it. The more muscle you have, the longer you're going to live. It's just the way it is. And then same is true for the opposite. The frailer, yeah, you say that, right? <laughs> the more frail you are, the more likely you are to suffer from a seemingly simple thing. And that's why we were seeing all these many fractured hips and just broken bones from pretty much nothing because we're getting to that point. Now, this has been so far a great interview and I've really enjoyed talking to you. Like you said, I think we have a lot of commonalities. Now, I probably already shared the things that you're going to share with our listeners before. I don't know why I have that feeling, but I always ask our guests to share their top two or three actionable pieces of advice that they would give our listeners in order for them to improve their life based on obviously their field of expertise. So what would be your top two or three recommendations for those of us listening to us? I'll give you three. My first one is kind of the simple one where people go, well, that didn't really help me move more. But I think the serious first piece of advice would be find out one or two movement activities that you really enjoy whether it's, as you said, with your wife going to the gym and taking specific classes, some people are class people. They love the sense of community in the class. The teacher saying, hey, you know, Dr. E, where were you last week? We missed you. Some people that drives them up the wall. So find out what you really enjoy doing and make sure that that's a priority that's scheduled into your life, you know, three or four times a week. My second piece of serious advice would be for any of us of whatever age, figure out a way to add some sort of resistance training into your life. Because again, this is adding to physical capacity as you age. And people often say, well, I don't want to go to the gym. You can buy a suspension trainer. And then people say, well, I don't know how to use that. One of the best gifts you can give somebody who wants to learn more is not everybody can afford a personal trainer on a regular basis but you can go to a personal trainer for two or three sessions, two or three times a year to get feedback on your exercise technique, to get a program designed for that three or four month period, and then come back six months later or three or four months later for another few sessions to get feedback and to build up on that. The advantage of that is you've got a professional who's looking and saying, you know, this has changed, this is getting better. These are some tips. These are some things that would add in. And it doesn't require as much money as you think. We talked a little bit about technology and you know, a lot of people say, well, my insurance doesn't pay for that. Bartering always works. And sometimes you have to think, you know, what's the value if I'm paying $60 for an hour session with a personal trainer once every three months, break that down to per day cost and break down how much it would cost if you can't go to work because of an injury or illness or you're bedridden because something happens. So I think the three pieces are move more, figure out what movement or movement activities you like, whether it's alone or with other people, try to do that as often as possible. And then the third one would be figure out a way two times a week or at least once a week to add some sort of resistance training. And I should add that for some people, the resistance training may be moving heavy boulders around their garden. I've got a friend of mine who you know, he does quite a bit of work moving bags of mulch and wheelbarrows and things like that around the three acres that he's landscaping. That's resistance training, even though he's not going to the gym. 
Yeah, exactly. You're lifting heavy things. I think those are great pieces of advice. So thank you so much for that. Before we say goodbye, I do want to acknowledge you and recognize the kind of work that you're doing. I mean, I think that we think very alike. I think that our missions align very well. But really, I want to recognize you for spending the time in creating this movement that you're creating and helping educate other people. Because in reality, I was talking about this in another podcast, somebody else's podcast a couple of weeks ago. And really, I think that it is our responsibility as health professionals, and not just doctors, but pretty much anyone who deals with health, it is our responsibility to first be educators. Most people aren't doing a lot of these things because they're not educated on it, not because they're lazy, not because they're this, not because, but simply because they don't have the reasoning behind it. They don't have the education behind it. So the fact that you're taking the time to educate people and to help them get this knowledge is something that I really want to acknowledge you for. So thank you so much for doing that. Well, I appreciate that. I think, again, to name drop, I was one of the first people I interviewed for Moving to Live as a physical educator named Rick Howard. And his comment was, I never want to be the person that another professional comes to or another person comes to and asks for my advice or recommendation and I don't respond. So I think, as you said, if you're in the movement field, you're in the education field. And before you can do cool stuff, sometimes it's the education that you may not think is cool, but at the end of the day, if you get one more person moving more, moving better, that's a pretty cool thing to have done. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. Where can people find out more about you? Two places. We do two podcasts, as I said, Fitness Lab Pittsburgh and Moving to Live. But the easiest way to find all of the links, if they go to FitLabPGH on Instagram, they'll be able to link to our YouTube channel that has movement tips and lifestyle hacks. They'll be able to link to our podcast. There'll also be a link to our Moving to Live podcast. So we've got podcasts, movement tips, and lifestyle hacks. And I would say for FitLab Pittsburgh, we also do the FitLab Pittsburgh features where we feature a two-legged or four-legged mover in the Pittsburgh area. And I will warn you that our videos are very heavy on Labradors because as you and I mentioned with the thinking and the moving, a lot of my thoughts for movement tips come when I'm jogging in the woods with my Labradors. There you go. There you go. I think that's great. One final question now for real before we say goodbye. Did you have a good time on the Highwood Health? I had a great time. I'm always happy to talk about movement, especially with somebody who's doing work like you're doing. Perfect. Well, that's what I like to hear. For everyone else tuning in, remember that every link, every resource that we spoke about, we're going to make sure to link that below. If you're watching this as a YouTube video, you're going to see that below in the description. If you're listening to this as a podcast, just scroll in your podcast app, scroll to the episode, and you'll find all the links there in the description. You'll find the links to the show notes. We'll have a transcript there. We'll have everything there for you to go and follow Ben and learn more about what we're doing. And if you have any questions about it, make sure to send them our way. I'll make sure to forward those that are for Ben. I'll forward them to him and maybe we can have them back or maybe we can do a Facebook Live in a private group. But this has been a great episode. Thank you everyone for tuning in. I look forward to seeing you here next week. Thank you for listening to Dr. E's Highway to Health show, helping you learn the science of living ageless. Did you enjoy the show? Please like, share, and subscribe where you listen to podcasts. Dr. E wants to hear from you. Go to dre.show. Again, that's dre.show. Until next time, this is Dr. E's Highway to Health, helping you live ageless. So what did you think of that episode? I was very surprised to find out how much Ben and I are in agreement about health and mobility in general. 
I hope you have found this information useful and have made the decision to start adopting some of the strategies that we spoke about. Before we go, remember to please take a moment and leave us a rating and a review. The easiest way to do it is by going over to dre.show forward slash rate, or just click on the link in this episode's description. Once again, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You've been listening to Ben Reuter and Dr. E talk about movement as a lifestyle. Thank you for tuning in. I'll see you here next week. And remember, you are on the highway to health, and I'm your guide to get you there.